You're listening to The Hunt with your hosts, Matt Woodward and Dan Adler. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to The Hunt with Matt and Dan podcast. We appreciate being with us. We're on the road today. We're not at the uh, Hunt Command office today. We're up in northern Arizona sitting here situated kind of in the corner between 8, 9, 10, 7 west towards Williams, Arizona. And our special guests today are only Guy Tynehekathorn and also David Rigo, one of the Long-time vested uh, Arizona Game and Fish Wildlife Managers, Game Wardens, a lot of different names for them, wherever you call them. But Officer Rigo uh, has been up in this region of the state for a long time. Two different stints up here is a wealth of knowledge, a longtime partner in conservation. And we're really excited to have these guys here in the mobile studio with us today. Officer Rigo, good morning to you. Thanks for being here. I think uh, a lot of our listeners are excited anytime they get to hear from a wildlife manager especially in not only Arizona's most iconic region, but arguably one of the West's most iconic regions, especially when you think of big game animals like elk. Uh, If you would tell our listeners a little bit about you, kind of your history here. I know you were here and then you you were gone for a little bit and now you're back. Much to the delight of us as outfitters and hunters and sportsmen, conservationists, because we know what an impact you've made here. Arguably no game officer has had quite the impact you've had on habitat in the last several years. Give our uh, audience a little introduction to you, what you want them to know about you, your background in hunting and fishing, how you came into the industry, and let us get to know Officer Rigo a little bit. Well, thank you for the introduction. So, um, David Rigo, I've been with Game and Fish since 1998. I started as an intern, then I went to the education branch, and then I started as a research biologist before I finally got hired as a wildlife manager. So, I've been around for a while, 23 years now. Um, I was in Unit 9, which is where I'm currently at, in the early 2000s, left in 2008, went to Lake Pleasant, was a main watercraft officer for six years, and then I went to the office for a while. I was our statewide DUI coordinator for, I think, five and a half years, then I ran the OHV program for a year, and now I'm back up here for a couple of years. So, back in Unit 9, loving it. It's, it's awesome up here. I've been in Arizona. I'm a fourth generation Arizonan. My kids are fifth. And uh, we've been out west since the first wagon train came across <laughs> Oregon Trail. So been out here a long time, a lot of history in Arizona. Love it out here. So. What's your first recollection? What got you into hunting and fishing? What's your first memory of that? Was it always a family tradition? Or what, what's the love? And how have you transferred that love for the outdoors for you to your wife and kids? Because I know they're all very into outdoors too. Yeah, so I don't ever remember not hunting and fishing. My dad obviously got me into it. And from a very young age, probably since I could walk, I was hunting and fishing. And I have wanted to be a wildlife manager or a professional fisherman as long as I can remember. I think I was six or eight years old, I wanted to do this. So kind of always gone this direction. Yeah, my wife and kids all hunt and fish and love it. My kid fishes Phoenix Junior Bassmasters, my oldest son, and and uh, he's very involved in that. And yep, we all like to do it. That's awesome. Hey, Tyne, what is your first recollection of running into Officer Rigo? You got any funny stories there, or what's your first time you remember meeting him? I knew Rigo from back in the day when he first ran Unit 9, and Rigo, was, Rigo killed one of the legend bulls that were running around in the unit back in the early 2000s, and so I knew Rigo from there, and then we had mutual friends, you know, and then, like you said, he went off to Pleasant for a while, kind of like in my prime of getting to run that unit you know so there was different officers in and out of there but we've i've always kept in touch with rigo you know between elk tags and talking about bulls and now we're practically neighbors and we see each other probably too much (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome 
I know one of the things our audience is excited to listen to is this this region, this specific area, um, obviously surrounded by lots and lots of public land, but also large swaths of private land and monumentally big Native American tribal reservations. Some of these reservations even bigger than other states back east. In your estimate, having a long history out here, what is the difference? I mean, why is why is this region, this this area of Arizona? What makes this area so special? How are the? I know this is under the Alternative Management Program, but talk a little bit about that. And is it the age class and the genetics? And what's that combination? Um, the impact of of these large swaths of private and tribal lands. What makes these elk really be the the giant dinosaurs compared to other parts of the West? In, in your estimate, what have you seen over the career you've you've spanned here in Arizona? Yeah, I think there's several factors that go into that. You know, obviously we got our elk from another state a while back here right after statehood and so all of our elk are kind of related you know they came from the same place the difference though in the northwest corner of the state versus you know, some of the other parts of the state or even the west to me is the soil i think a lot of you know if you look at the grand canyon both the north and the south side north of it you have some of the biggest deer in the world you know the arizona strip kaibab and it just grows giant deer. Um, and just south of it, you have Unit 9, Unit 10, and some of the reservation elk that are some of the biggest elk in the world. And I think a lot of that's coming from the habitat, from the nutrients that are coming out of the soil, the different you know limestone, the different things that are in this area that might not be in other areas in the state. And, and I think a lot of it comes from that. There's just some different nutrients coming out of the soil, in my opinion. You know, they're eating a lot of the same things. But another factor to that is we have a lot of cliff rows in this area, and I really think cliff rows is a big factor in growing big antlers on these animals. Um, there, there's a lot of different kind of habitat and forage things that they use around the world, but it seems like that really grows big animals, both on the strip here, locusts, or some different vegetation that they, that they feed on in this area. But I, honestly, I think a lot of it's coming through the soil, some of the nutrients in the soil. And am I saying the term right? Is it the alternative management program that units like, I think it's 9, 10, 23, and 1, where it's a technically managed on an administrative standpoint as a higher bull-to-cow ratio in an older age class bull? Are you still, are, when they think about tag numbers as a state, and I know we do surveys and host hunter reports and things like that, is that program kind of still in place? Is that still what it's called? If I'm butchering it, tell me. But I feel like those three or four units have always had a little bit less tags for that little bit better quality experience. Is that still the future of those handful of units in your estimation? Yeah, you missed uh, unit 27 as well. Okay. So there's five. But yeah, we, we actually manage them a little different. So statewide, we're managing 15 to 20 bulls per 100 cows, you know, most of our units. And in our trophy units, we're, we want at least 25, 25 to 40 bulls per 100 cows. So unit nine, I have about 34 bulls per 100 cows right now. I've had as high as 43 okay. over the years, in, in the years that I've had it. 43 bulls per 100 cows. So you got a lot higher bull to cow ratio in a lot of them less tags. So they're living to be the, you know, older age. And again, we have pretty good feed and pretty good soil conditions, I think. You combine that older age and that higher bull to cow ratio with our habitat, you get those bigger animals. So we're not harvesting as many and we're letting them grow a little longer. So our average age that we're shooting is a much older animal than we're shooting in other units. Has your research shown that a lot of the, the bigger bulls, the top-end bulls you see get killed out of this region every year, are they pretty transient between the tribal reservations? Do more of them reside on, on the, uh, the large private properties up here, or, 
or even on the public. I mean, obviously most of them get killed on the public unless guys have ranch access in some of the different units. But I know the range varies widely during the rut, but kind of at the core area, are they pretty back and forth? What's What's been your experience over the last two decades? Yeah, so let's talk about Unit 9 a little bit for the people that are out of state wanting to come hunt here. I'll address that in just a second, but the unit as a whole is pretty flat. We have some units that are very glassable. Um, unit 10, neighboring unit, is probably significantly more glassable and huntable for a lot of people than unit nine. Nine's pretty flat, so you're chasing bugles. There are some places to get up in glass. A lot of people uh, don't know them. Sure. Um, and and uh, a lot of it's just not as glassable. And so those elk live a little longer on the public land, I think, because they're just harder to kill. So Unit 9 is unique in that to the north of Unit 9 is the Grand Canyon National Park. It borders us. You can't hunt there. To the east and to the west, I have an Indian reservation. So I have essentially three places for those elk to go live and get to be an old age and not be harvested every year. So um, we do have some ingress and egress to and from other units and or off the reservation or the park. So those bulls do move around a lot. I'll have bulls up in Unit 9 that might come down to Unit 7 for the rut. You know, they might move 50 miles to go rut. It's uh, They move around a lot more than people think they do. And the same thing off the... I believe the bull I killed that Tyne was talking about came off the reservation. That's where I think he came from because I never saw him in Unit 9 that summer. But yeah, they move around quite a bit. So we do have bulls that live to pretty good older ages because of that. And they're able to move around and, and uh, in and out of those areas you can't hunt. I would say though that most of those bulls are staying on public land the majority of the time because of the water Um, a lot of the water within the park dries up during the summer there's only a few waters that actually have water on the reservation the waters that have water are going to be the ranchers hauling water and putting water in there this area of the state the unit 9 area 910 some of these uh, little small part of the state the soil is a little different the water goes right through it unless you've, you know, basically bentonited the tanks, uh, put some kind of a treatment into them and, and uh, hardened them. A lot of the areas of the state when it rains, some of the canyons will hold water. You little pockets of water and canyons and rock piles and it doesn't really happen in Unit 9. It goes right through the soil. It, it might be there a week or so and then it goes away. Yeah, sorry to interrupt you real quick. Am I correct in thinking that Unit 9 is one of the only units in the state with no springs or natural water? Did I read that somewhere? I think I read that somewhere that there was no springs or something. I don't, like I don't know if it's the only it? unit in the state, but yeah, I don't have any springs that hold water all year yeah, okay. in, in the unit. So no natural. In, in fact, right now I currently have three dirt tanks with water in them, hmm. and I have close to 60 catchments that we put water into, that we've okay. built, that we put water into. So as the summer is progressing here, the ranchers are actually hauling water, so I'm going to start having dirt tanks with more water in them because they're putting water in them. But as far as rain is concerned, there isn't any water out there. We're, I think the last I checked, we were 11 inches behind in rainfall, which is a pretty significant amount of water that we don't have on the landscape. So yeah, there's just, there's not much water. And I, and I think because of that, the water that's up there is water we're hauling and it's on public land. So it's keeping those bulls on public land. You know, once it gets close to the hunting season, that September, that fall monsoon season, it starts raining some. And some of those bulls will start moving and they'll move, you know, off some and some of them go in the park yeah. and canyon. And for the most part, I think most of those bulls are huntable. Those uh, food sources you mentioned earlier, how dependent are they on the rainy season and monsoon season? And you mentioned we're 11 inches behind right now. Where does that fall over the course of your career? Have you seen years where we were this far behind? Have you seen years where we were worse? Is this 
you know, kind of in your career up here, where are we sitting in that water and how does it impact those food sources? Obviously the tanks aren't going to fill up. The catchments aren't going to fill up. We're going to talk about the support that's needed to, to keep the water movement going, but specifically those food sources and specifically what have you seen historically up here? Uh, this is 2021, depending on where you're listening and when you're listening to this podcast. Um, where do we sit in 2021 in terms of your two decades of experience up here from a water perspective? So obviously with our our forage is extremely important for to get rainfall you know all those little forbs and things that pop up in the spring when it rains are extremely important to these animals they they utilize them and right now when they're growing antlers obviously they need all the nutrients they can get so those things are important um, that being said unit 9 is notoriously dry even on a wet year the rainfall I, I think it's partly to do with the canyon the currents coming up out of the canyon you know the canyon's hotter during the summer and kind of cooler in the winter and and, you know i think it acts almost like as a mountain range when the storms come by that that difference in air coming up out of there kind of pushes them away it's kind of what i think i'm not a meteorologist or anything but if you watch it rain it rains in flag it rains in parks it rains around a lot even up on in unit 10 and it kind of misses unit 9 a lot and it just goes right around it and i think that the canyon has a big effect on that. It's the only thing I can really come up with because there's only one one hill in Unit 9, Red Red Mountain, Red Hill. Mm-hmm. Other than that, there's no mountains up there affecting that. So I think a lot of that's just current coming out of yeah, Cataract Canyon and in the Grand Canyon that's yeah, causing surrounded that. by a canyon. Yeah. And so, but to answer your question, I have a lot of my vegetation that's dying. If you look down in the Lockwood Canyon area, which is the southeast corner of Unit 9, and that's where all the mule deer are migrating through in the winter. I would guess that close to 50% of those junipers out there are dying right now in certain areas, mm-hmm. you know, not unit wide. but Is that beetles areas. or the rain? Beetles and rain both, I think. Yeah. It's, it's having an effect. With that being said, I think the unit's actually got some good grass in it. I've seen some bulls recently that are already five on a side. Big eye guards, good mass. You've probably been up there and mm-hmm. seen them. I think as long as we get some late spring, early summer rain, like right now, we start mm-hmm. getting some rain, that they'll still top out. Mm-hmm. And I think we'll still have some good bulls. If we don't get rain pretty quick here, I think the top ends are going to be hurt this year. I don't think we're going to have those. I mean, it's unit nine. We're still going to have giant bulls, bulls, 360, 370 bulls, which is giant bull anywhere in the world. That's right. mm-hmm. I don't think we're going to have as many of those 400 plus bulls this year unless we get the rain because I don't think they'll top out unless they but if we do i think they will because they're set up right now and they're in pretty good shape i think uh, if we get some rain they'll definitely finish out strong so it's up in the air on that i guess at the moment for me go off on a quick tangent about those juniper trees what's your thought on losing 50 60 75 percent of juniper trees in some of these areas and i guess the reason i ask that is if you look back at the historical photographs of the area 100 years ago, 120 years ago, as cattle were being introduced in the 1870s and 1880s, we didn't have these juniper trees. We had very few juniper trees. And this kind of massive influx of juniper over the last 100 years, drying the soil up, utilizing more water and things like that, is less junipers a good thing long term? So, yeah, I think it depends on the species you're talking about. Absolutely, I'd like to see a lot of those junipers cut down and moved out of there to help certain species like pronghorn mm-hmm. right if we can open that area up have less trees in there a little bit less water oh, utilization sure. some other things i think that would absolutely help pronghorn and even some of the deer migrating through there uh, you know elk they like 
thick timber. They like to go mm-hmm. bed they down in the shade. Yeah. They, you mm-hmm. know, they're obviously a plains animal originally, and they like that. But when it's 120 out and they're laying in the sun, it kind of isn't fun. But the elk will move. Like mm-hmm. you can grow elk on the worst year ever. Mm-hmm. It's easy. It's not hard to grow elk. Yeah, well, the pretty that last year wasn't a great year. Mm-hmm. They're kind of like the javelina. Yeah, they're just great. Some of the other species, though, yeah, I think getting rid of the some of those juniper trees would greatly benefit our pronghorn herd, for instance. So it it doesn't bother me that they're dying, mm-hmm. but then we need to remove them too. So sure. there's you know there's both sides of that. But Fire hazards and other issues created by yeah. the surplus of yeah dead material out there. And we do do juniper removal projects mm-hmm. in those mm-hmm. you know fringe area pronghorn habitat type of areas. That would be now that they're dead. Maybe I can get a project done where Good I can get some remove. of those removed. Right. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Sure. But, okay. but absolutely, the rainfall, I think, is starting to... And to Matt's point, the, they are actually, for those that may not be native to Arizona, that is actually an invasive species that literally came with the, the cow droppings, yeah, as far, right? Yeah, as far as I, like, how I understand it is we had junipers, and junipers are native to a oh, certain okay. degree, but we had a very small amount of them. And they were stuck on little timbered slopes and in drainages and stuff, and then cattle were moved in in mass in the 1870s and after that. They, of course, then distributed juniper seeds and uh, disrupted the soil and such, allowing all those junipers to kind of take hold. So we've got a lot of juniper in this part of the world that's all 140 years old. Yeah. They're all like in this, they're all established in this like 20, 40, 50 year period. And that's what's kind of taken over the lots of big swaths of land that are just kind of covered up in juniper right now. And good, bad, or indifferent, it, it is different than it was 100 years ago. So I don't, didn't know whether that is a good thing or a bad thing or, or what, but uh, uh, the historic pictures out between here and the Grand Canyon, for example, was open grasslands, juniper dotted out there. And now we look at those same areas and it's solid wall to wall, shoulder to shoulder juniper. You know? mm-hmm. Well, if you look statewide, our, our entire state has changed a lot over the years, mm-hmm. obviously. And, um, you know, down by Wickenburg, for instance, those used to be big Gaeta grass flats. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you'd, my dad can remember when he was a kid seeing 50 deer a day out in the grass flats right mm-hmm. and now that's mesquite and then there's a lot of creosote out there which mm-hmm. obviously creosote kills other yeah. plants around it right yeah that wasn't prevalent back then it was mm-hmm. more grass flats and, and that's changed and you look down by tucson it was big mesquite bosque and yeah. it's changed down there so there's been a lot of change to the state yeah statewide and, mm-hmm. I, and i don't i don't know i'm not a range biologist enough to know on the juniper thing exactly well, it wasn't one here, but I have seen historic photos, and I can sure. agree with you that it, it did not look the same. It's as different. Yeah, so, yeah. Like yeah. I said, good, bad, or indifferent, it, it's definitely different than it was. I don't know if that's like better or worse, but the, between here and the Grand Canyon, we had big, vast, open flats in, mm-hmm. in that you know in the Red Mountain mm-hmm. area and stuff. And then you look at those pictures today. It's same thing in New Mexico. We've seen that, all, of course, all across the Southwest, but. And I think yeah, the biggest so. downside to juniper, pound for pound, compared, and I, I'm not also not a biologist, but pound for pound, they're a thirstier tree they're thirstier shrub than than most other trees of their size mm-hmm. so they really can, can suck up that water and nothing grows underneath them so every juniper tree knocks out that you habitat. know call it 40 square feet of edible grass and grasses and things like that yeah. whether you're grazing cattle or elk it'll be interesting to see how the things how things change over the next 40 years so we all know that uh sportsmen are first sportsmen and women are first in line to come to the come to the call when when nature's suffering we're always the ones not only boots on the ground but also with our dollars we know that arizona elk society has been very instrumental uh, the arizona game and fish has been very instrumental 
talk a little bit about, uh, if you would, Officer Regal, about the relationship we have. Who are these organizations? What's been the impact? What's that teamwork like when you're trying to coordinate a government agency with a volunteer agency? And if people are interested, how they can contribute to those to those agencies that are helping and how. You know, some people have time, but not the income. Some people have the income, but not the time and kind of everything in between. Who's our partners out there? And um, in years like this, uh, what, what can we do to help? Yeah, you know, there's quite a few of those groups. Um, I, I'm not going to sit and mention them all, but our NGOs are are extremely important. You know, in the elk world, we've got RMEF, so Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. You've got the Arizona Elk Society, probably the two biggest ones up here that I would work with. You know, on the deer side, we've got the Mule Deer Foundation. We've got the Arizona Mule Deer Org. You have the Antelope Foundation. There's there's a bunch of them, right? And, and I've worked with quite a few of them. Just yesterday, the Elk Society volunteers, you know, Dan and Hank, were out hauling water for me in Unit 9. And if it wasn't for them, I'd have dry tanks right now because they're putting water in them for me. And there's only so much of that I can do. We have 1,000-gallon water tanks, and each each catchment holds 21,000 gallons. So you figure 60 catchments... It, I could literally haul water every day for the next year, and I wouldn't be able to fill them all a thousand gallons at a time. Yeah. You know, I, I have, for instance, Mathis, which is out in the Triangle part of Unit 9 in the northwest corner. It's about 20 miles of dirt to get there from the pavement. So when you're hauling a 10,000-pound trailer with you know a thousand gallons of water in it, you're not driving that fast mm-hmm. on dirt, and you've got to drive 20-something miles and then dump it and then drive 20-something miles back to get more. You're talking three, four hours for one trip. You might get two to three trips a day, 3,000 gallons in, it, in a tank that holds 21,000. Wow. So you, you do the math on that. How long and 800 of it's getting drank that night. <laughs> oh, absolutely. So it, if I tried to do this by myself, it just flat wouldn't happen. We've yeah. got dry tanks everywhere. So it's extremely important that these groups have come to the table and helped out. And, um, you know, I have guys that are welding, fixing my fences when, the, when they get broken down by elk, cattle, or whatever the case may be, horses. I have other guys that are hauling water. I have people that, if you go onto the AZ Wildlife Heroes, is a is what it's called, but it, you could just Google Arizona Wild, Water for Wildlife, it'll come up. But there, you can go on there, you can donate money if you have the money, because you know we, we average about a million dollars a year in water, God. just putting water on the landscape. God. Last year we were close to a million gallons of water statewide, and, and uh, I think we're gonna be over 500,000 in Unit 9 this year. We've been hauling the entire year, even the spring. We never stopped. Like, it's very important that these groups help. You know, the antelope people, they're building fences. They're, they're fixing wires so the antelope can go underneath them. And it's not, you know, these low barbed wire fences. They're getting them the right height and smooth wire and doing a lot of work. And a lot of these organizations are fixing um, pastures for ranchers. You know, they're going out, ripping down fence, putting in new fence, doing whatever they need to do to help out to keep access so there's quite a few uh, things going on. We, we need volunteers when we build catchments. I have two catchments going into Unit 9 that are already approved. I just got $110,000 to rebuild another one. And that, that requires a lot of work. You gotta dig holes, you gotta put these drinkers in, you gotta bury the you know, the uh, storage units, put up the apron. So there's, there's quite a bit of man hours that go into that. So a lot of that's done with volunteer work. People come out and help and we get a lot of work done. So all that stuff's available, it's out there. Even as simple as if you have a free day and you can help me by checking my catchments and sticking a tape measure in there and saying this one has 20 inches of water and that one has 15 that's a day i don't have to go out and do that it saves me time when i'm trying to check 60 of them it might take me a whole week to check them all and then it takes me several weeks to to haul and by the time i get done hauling i'm checking them again so 
just having somebody sending me that on occasion, that's I don't have to drive way over there because I know that one's done and this is what's in there. So we know, for instance, a tank holds 30 inches of water. Okay. Let's just say 30 inches for easy math. And you tell me there's 15 inches in there, it's half full because they're gravity fed. So if it's a 20,000 gallon tank, I know it has 10,000 gallons. It's very simple. So just as easy as taking a tape measure in the deepest part and telling me this thing has seven inches of water in it, I can easily do the math and say, okay, I'm good for a couple of weeks because this is what I have. I need to order water now or whatever. That saves us so much time. And people tend to call me and say, hey, this one's dry or this one has two inches. Well, by then it's an emergency because by yeah. the time we're there in the next day or so, it's already been drank. I mean, they're drinking quite a bit at night. Like Tyne said, there's a lot of elk, a lot of deer. That's mm -hmm. the only water up there. There's not dirt tanks to utilize, right. so they are drinking them down. So if you wait till there's an inch or two to tell me, then it's like almost too late. It's going to dry up by the time you get water to it. So yeah, there's a lot to be done that I could absolutely use help with. So if you guys want to get with any of those groups, they, they have volunteers, that'd be great. We also have volunteers at Game and Fish, a volunteer program. Okay. You can sign up for there as well and we tell you what projects are coming up. I think the biggest thing you just took away, maybe you guys knew this, um, tell me if you did, but... Um, I've always just kind of eyeballed it and said, hey, you know, I'm at this tank and my eyes are saying it's half, it's full, it's a third, it's it's emergency level. But heck, that's a great trick. So almost every hunter out there has got a tape measure in their truck. Mm -hmm. Find the deepest yep. part of that tank and be able to say, hey, it's got X amount of inches and that's where we're at. And um, is there anything else people can, when they're looking at a tank, eyeballing it, broken dams, broken pipes? I mean, are there other things that you'd like these guys out there? Because I know... All these sportsmen conservationists, they want to help. Like, I mean, is there so that that was a really good tip for me. Is there anything else they should be looking for when they're out there on the landscape? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, one thing, the biggest thing I probably get is people calling saying this tank's almost dry, and I'll go out there and it's like half full, but they're fifty-four inches deep, okay. right? So, some of the new ones. Mm -hmm. um, so that you look at it and it's the water's way down there, and the elk actually go have to go down yes. into yeah. some of the new yeah. ones to yeah, get to it. That. Yeah. But that's the design of it. But I go and I measure it, and I'm like, there's 10,000 gallons yeah. in here. It's not a priority. I need to go to the one with 2,000 gallons in it, right? So mm -hmm. instead of just telling me, this thing's empty, and then I'm like, oh, man, and I fly out there the next day, and I spend half my day going there to realize it's got 10,000 gallons in it. If you just told me this thing has so many inches, that it would save a lot of time and a lot of headaches because we're literally chasing those ghosts all summer. Uh-huh. And it's, it's people eyeballing it thinking this thing's like dry and it really has a lot of water and they just don't realize it. But the actual perimeter fence is getting broken. Okay. Elk are big. They land on a fence, it's going to break, it's going to break welds. Um, cattle are breaking into some of them, some of the wild cattle especially, um, horses. We don't want them in there. They're drinking their water, right? We want them to go drink the, the water that's being provided to them by the ranchers. So um, if, the, if you get to those fences and they're broken down... We need to know so we can get them welded. And obviously, during fire restrictions, we can't do that. So they stay broken. Um, we, we can only do so much, you know. But when we can get it fixed, we need to. And then the other thing is the gates. You know, I was going to touch on this and some of the issues in the unit. But there are people that are just flat lazy, right, in this yeah. world. And the ones that open a gate to walk 20 yards to check to look at the water and then leave the gate open and leave, that is incredibly detrimental so i just had a tank go dry south pasture just went dry because somebody left the gate open and the, the cattle got in there and it wasn't their rancher. their rancher is the one that told me it was open that closed it and got Jeez. a cattle out so thank you to him right right but it was probably someone looking for an antler that opened it to walk in there and then just left it open 
People, really? <laughs> you know, like for crying out loud. So I've literally had to start putting chains and locks on some of these so people don't open them because otherwise they're getting drank. I mean, if you figure out how much water is getting drank a night by, um, you know, livestock, it adds up fast. Yeah. So we, you know, look how much the elk are drinking. Tonight. Right. We need to uh, not do that by being lazy. So that kind of stuff. If you see an open gate, close it. If you see broken fences, let me know so I can fix them. That, that's the kind of stuff I need to know. Do you guys have a problem with leaks? Because things break and end up draining the tank or anything like that. Are they all pretty uh, pretty well built? Yeah, not really. They're they're uh, underground for the most part. Okay. The piping okay. and and so we don't really yeah, have a problem with the leaks. So leaks the way all the new ones work is they're gravity fed. So um, you know the twenty thousand gallons, most of them have, and then um, there's a pipe between them and the and the drinker that's okay. several feet underground, and so it's not freezing or anything right in the winter. So pretty much unless somebody intentionally got in there and messed with the tank, it's it's not it's not going to break. Okay. We have a problem with the older style ones. So halfway, some of these tanks that have floats on them, mm-hmm. that's what we have a problem with. Bears will get in there and break those floats. People, halfway's notorious for being dry. It overflows every year too. <laughs> well, if you go look at the float, it's almost always unscrewed and all the parts are laying there. That's not a bear. A bear is breaking stuff, right? Yeah. Someone unscrewing it is a person from town that's unscrewing it because it's been doing it for years. And I can't quite catch them. I don't know who's doing it, but... That's a person doing that. And so, why, there was, why would somebody do that? I, I have no idea. So, last year we put 10,000 gallons in it. Yeah. And that week someone undid it and it was all on the ground a couple of days later. So, that's 10,000 gallons. That's a Good. lot of work. That's a lot of money that's now on the ground because someone messed with the float. So, those are the ones. If there's any of the float systems and stuff that are that are, you see a problem with or they're breaking, we definitely need to know because they just won't hold the water after that. But the newer systems is what we're putting in. They're pretty flawless. And nice. then the old concrete ones, you can't really break those. Yeah. So. so I want to shift gears here just for a little bit. Uh, talk about, we just did a podcast a couple weeks ago that's been, we've got really good feedback on it. And part of the conversation was managing hunters' expectations, not just as guides and outfitters, but as DIY hunter. Like, let's say a guy lives in Chicago, now he draws a unit nine tag. So the first thing the guy's going to do is he's going to go to the internet or he's going to go read a magazine. And it's going to be this 400-inch bull and this governor's bull and this 430 bull and Waldo and all these amazing elk. But we also know that those are the elk that make the cover stories of the magazines, the cover stories of the podcasts or, or the, the, the TV show or whatever. A guy draws a, an archery nine tag. We'll stick with elk for the moment. A guy draws a late archery elk tag. A guy draws a late rifle elk tag. As you know, those seasons are vastly different. If you're that guy sitting in an office in Chicago, but in relatively good shape, uh, what, you know, are we coming to Arizona with our tag going 425 or bust, you know, because I think that's setting themselves up a little bit for failure. Talk a little bit about what's a realistic expectation. Where, where's the, the Hollywood versus the reality of, of hunting these, these iconic units in your mind, specifically nine. Okay. So some of the reality is going to be based on you. If you give that tag to Tyne and he's got an early archery tag, he's going to kill a 380 plus bull. The average hunter is not, um, even with a guide. I think the reality, you know, there was maybe 10 bulls over 400 last year, and I think they killed three, including an auction hunter that was hunting before the season and an early rifle one. So it's not like you're going to come up here and, and just be seeing those every day and have a chance at all those. You need to listen to your guys. But I, I think a very realistic expectation is a 360 bull in, in Unit 9 on early hunts. On the early hunts, you should be able to shoot a 360 370 type bull if you, with two weeks to hunt and you're a good hunter and you know what you're doing and you know put out putting in the effort i i think that's 
realistic. And I think a lot of people are shooting smaller bulls than that, 330, 340 bulls, and, and they're very happy with those. And, and, and honestly, anywhere in the world, that's a great bull. Yes, sir. We're spoiled up here, right? But I, I think, you know, on any given year that you're hunting a 360, 370 bull with the chance of killing a bigger bull, late hunts are totally different, right? Late hunts, the bulls go and they hide. They go in the thick stuff. They go in the canyons. They're hard to kill. Broken. They're broken. Yeah, that's another thing. The northwest part of the state, they're notorious for broken antlers. They might be huge, but they might be pretty lightweight, and they break a lot. Yeah. A lot of the bulls last year we were hunting, we were hunting bulls that were breaking Shattered, in the middle yeah. of the hunt. Yeah. Uh, so that's a frustration. But the late hunts, it's a lot different. The late archery hunt up here, if it snows and it's noisy and they don't have to come to water, that's a pretty tough hunt. You know, it's a very low success rate at that point. If it's hot and dry, you're sitting water for days on end trying to get a shot at one. You know, realistically, I think a 320, 330 bull is a really nice bull in that hunt. I think you can kill a bigger bull. I think you're crazy to be passing up a 330 bull in a late archery hunt. I really do, even in Unit 9. Um, the late rifle hunt, if you put a lot of time in and you scout it and you've done a lot of homework, you still have all those other guys messing you up. Mm-hmm. So my brother's kids had that hunt last year, and opening morning we had people park 50 yards from our truck and walk in right on us and start hmm. shooting at first light. So wow. we were there first, and we were in the canyon, and all of a sudden there were people all around us, and when we walked back to our truck, there were people parked 50 yards from us. So you can't control those situations. And so, you know, after that first day, they start getting pushed, things change, and it's it's hard to shoot a, a big bull on a late hunt. If you kill a really big bull on a late hunt, that's awesome. You either got super lucky or you're a really good hunter because those are tough. Sure. It's so flat as Rigo hit on earlier as well, you know, like there's very minimal glassing. So unless you've really done your homework to hike into a sea, a jungle of cedars to go to a pocket that is not visible from anywhere unless you walk in there, you know, which there's not a lot of secrets anymore these days with all the technology, but the, like Rigo is saying, if you don't kill a bull on the first couple of days of that late hunt, then it gets super, super tough. You know, that's why these bulls are so big. They have a lot of hiding places and they can jump that fence and they're safe. You mm-hmm. know, so. I think unit nine is not one of the better late hunts. Right. Mm-hmm. I would much rather have unit 10 tag. Right. You can get on a hill, you can glass, you can right. find a bull. You have a way better opportunity to shoot a big bull in unit 10 on a late hunt than you do in unit 9, in my opinion. I get the so call flat. every year, you know, it's like, I got a 9 tag, you know, I got a unit 9 tag. Do you have a November unit 9 tag or do you have a September unit 9 tag, you know? And a lot of the times it's the November phone call, you know, and I'm pretty honest with guys on that hunt and because it's... It's tough, you know, and like we're pretty much going to walk a lot and we're going to shoot a bull. We're going to shoot a bull, but it's going to be a quick thing. And if he's not broken, we're going to be really happy, you know, because yeah. it's just it's a tough hunt to where in September we're throwing rocks at 350 plus bulls, you know, to get them to run off, you know, to get on to the next one. It's just it's a totally different ball game, you know. I've, I've told people before that either because uh, it's not a, a, a unit on that late hunt where our in-house concierge application service actually applies people but when clients call us that have drawn it I've often referred to it as without in the absence of snow on the late November hunt we're gonna turn that late general tags from a hunting strategy wise it's almost gonna feel like an archery hunt mm-hmm. you know if you're not the finding the bulls on, on one of the limited hills we've got 
Um, we're going to be in there with, you know, what I call neck glass. We're going to be in there with glass around our neck. We're not going to have the tripods. We're going to be going through the trees and through the thick stuff and trying to catch one moving or trying to catch one in the bed. It's a totally different experience. Mm -hmm. If you were to look in a crystal ball, which none of us can do, do you see this region and, and this unit uh, maintaining the status, this alternative management program is that clearly working, at least in my eyes? Is that the, uh, would you say that's kind of the future of, of this part of the state for, for uh, again, speaking about the help? So, you know, that, that direction comes from our commission. So, as far as I know, they're not changing that anytime soon. I don't see that changing. When I came back to Unit 9, was looking at bullet cow ratio and some of the trends in the, in the, in the data. And there was quite a few more tags in Unit 9 when I came back a couple years ago than there, than there were when I left for bull. And, and there was a reason for that. You know, populations go up and down and things change. But uh, I cut the tags. I think I cut 160 bull tags that first year after I got back um, between all the hunts to try to get that age structure back up and the bull-to-cow ratio back up and, and some of that. So we're still definitely managing for that. And that's the direction I see it going right now. And, and unless the commission tells us otherwise, I don't see that changing. That's clearly up to them. So, But for now, that's the way I, I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. And I'm definitely going to do my best to keep the age classed up and, and keep the better bulls in there and do what I can to, to keep it as a trophy unit. We've talked a lot about in the last 30, 40 minutes about elk, but obviously it's not limited elk. You mentioned deer migration. In an elevator speech on the other species up here, what are you seeing? And, and I know I'd like to at least one of those questions to be, have you seen the increase? Perceptually, I've seen an increase in coos deer numbers moving north. I see a lot more javeline up in this part of the country than I did when I was in high school or college. What are you seeing uh, as far as changes in the, in the uh, volume or critter content, however you want to phrase it? Uh, what are some of the other species that take up a lot of your time up here? Yeah, sure. So I've personally never seen a coos deer in Unit 9. I know some people that say they have, and I've seen some antlers picked up up there that were clearly coos deer. There's probably some there. I've never seen one from the air or on camera or, or ever. Let's start with antelope. So I, there's a big misconception that Unit 9 is a really good antelope unit, and, and I think it used to be. And I remember, you know, back 15 years ago, that the, the governor's hunters, some of them, shooting their bucks in Unit 9. Yeah. Uh, right now, I would say that it's not if you want a really big buck. I still have a good uh, buck to doe ratio. My buck to doe ratio is um, 34 bucks per 100 does. So there's plenty of bucks. They're not very big in Unit 9. My, my antelope herd is way down, and a lot of that is just fawn recruitment. So my fawn recruitment is 7 fawns per 100 does, which is way below where we want it to be. Yeah. And you can't really manufacture that. You got to have rain. You got to have hiding cover, fawn hiding cover, so they live and don't get ate. You know, by coyotes and other things. You, you've got to have some of the stuff that we don't have right now in this drought to be able to do that. But that's our, you know, that's our new antelope coming back in to replenish our herd. Right. That's mm -hmm. that's what makes our herd better. And uh, you know, some of those are going to be bucks, and some of those are going to be does. But without that recruitment coming in, there's only so much you can do for antelope herds. And but anyway. On a whole, I, I only know of two bucks that were over 80 inches last year in Unit 9. And even there, there's a, one of the outfitters that has access to a, a very large private ranch in Unit 9, they shot a 79-inch goat with their, with their client. That's all they could find even on that big private ranch. So there's quite a few guys that are, that are putting in with a very high number of points. I had a guy last year, with, I think he had 26 points. They got mad at me because I told him there wasn't a lot of big bucks in Unit 9. I was just trying to be honest. Right. And, and he got kind of mad at me about it because 
he used all his points for that unit. But I, I, I just want people to know it's a great unit if you want to come up and have fun and shoot an antelope. Success rate's pretty good. It's not a good unit if you're looking for some kind of world record or, or super giant antelope because they're not there right now. Now that changes year to year. So antelope move to wherever it's green. If we get a bunch of rain, some of those unit 10 antelope show up in nine, some of the seven antelope show up in nine, we could have a bunch of big bucks running around and vice versa. If it rains in 10 or seven, they're all just gonna kind of bail and go that way and they go to where the green spots are. And uh, so without that happening, that phenomenon, I would say that unit nine is an average antelope unit right now. I wouldn't say it's a really super amazing one. And so just to be honest with people out there. Absolutely. Um, but it is, we still have plenty of bucks, so we still have the tags and, and our success rate's still high. So if you wanna come have a antelope hunt and have fun, just come with that attitude and 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 like you said it changes year to year you know 10 years i've seen it good you know really good twice you know in 10 years but eight of those 10 years are super average if average you know yeah so let's talk about our our mule deer we changed some things this year a lot of the units around the state closed their archery december i was one of them i was closing it for different reasons so let me kind of say what I mean on that. We started looking at unit nine. When I look at unit nine, when I, you know, back when I had it before versus now, I feel like I saw a lot more deer in the summer. I think there was more resident deer is what I'm trying to say than there is now. If you look at our surveys, which we fly in the winter when the deer are there because they migrate in, we have a stable population and it looks like our population is the same or or better than it used to be, right? It, It looks the same. So on paper, we look wonderful if you look year to year to year on population. And what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of these deer migrating. So we've now put collars on a bunch of deer, both in unit seven, 11M, and now in unit nine in the winter. And we're watching them migrate. And they're definitely migrating in the spring and in the fall, hmm. back and forth. And a lot of the deer are going to these big burns down in unit seven and 11M. They're utilizing these burns. So I don't know if there's less deer or if there's just more deer going to other units during the summer because in the winter there's still a lot of deer so we used to think oh they're hiding in the park or you know whatever coming off the res but they're not they're actually going back and forth to Flagstaff like 50 miles I have deer that have gone 80 miles so looking at all of that I also didn't used to have a winter archery deer hunt in unit 9 it was introduced 10 or so years ago 12 years ago and when you start looking at my archery deer harvest, um, 80% of that harvest occurs on that December, January hunt. 60% of it is in December alone. So if I'm wanting to reduce the harvest on that migratory herd, which is again, unit seven, they only have an August archery deer hunt over the counter because their success rate is so high, we're above guidelines. We're in the 20% range every year, even with just having an archery hunt in August and yep. not having December, January. Now we're taking that same herd when they migrate to nine and then shooting them in nine, right? So we're like double tapping that herd. Right now, while we're looking at all this data and we're trying to figure out what's going on with this migration, don't want to do that, right? So we're kind of erring on that side of safety and gonna shoot less of those deer and, and help the herd out and get that age structure up a little bit too. So I'm eliminating the deer hunt, or I did in unit nine for December to save that 60% that was being harvested there, but it's also it's that same herd that we're already shooting in seven, and then we have a late, a late December draw hunt in seven. So 
we're like, you know, really hammering this herd. And so we're just kind of reducing that pressure a little bit. And, and we're going to continue to monitor all this data and collar data and see what's going on with it and hopefully make some changes in a couple of years here. Colby, the Unit 7 Wildlife Manager and I, we're going to get together and we're going to decide what's best for the unit as a whole. And it might be that we treat 7 and 9 as one migrant, as one herd. Yeah. So instead of treating it as two different units, we might treat it as one giant unit for a hunt and, and design the hunt that way, I guess. We don't know. We're not there yet. Mm-hmm. We still got a lot of data to go. We might keep it the way it is, but we're kind of looking at that big picture, that bigger picture than just our little unit, right? And so, looking at all that, um, and also there's some other factors going in there. One of the big things in Arizona is population growth, right? We're over seven and a half million people now, constantly growing. Hunter numbers have gone through the roof. So in 2010, we had just over 20,000 over-the-counter deer tags, 20,100. And in 2020, the last number I saw was almost 29,000. Wow. So that's a 42% increase in, in over-the-counter tags. We haven't increased our deer herd 42%, right? right. <laughs> like, we just have it. We don't have the deer. We're down. We're in a drought. We're getting more and more hunters that are utilizing these herds and, and hitting them. So Unit 9 now, let's look at that specifically. Historically, I, re- I averaged about 150 hunters on the over-the-counter hunt. Okay, all the way back up until 2017, I had 214, which is the first time it ever went over 200, according to our survey data. 2019, I had 450. Wow. So I'd gone up three times as many from 2016 to 2019, wow. archery deer hunters. So it's, it's, it's a bigger thing than people think. And now, look at last year. Last year with the pandemic, everybody was in the woods. Everybody was hunting. I don't yeah. have those numbers yet, yeah. but I've got to think that I'm going to be quite a bit more than that even. So when you go from 150 to whatever it's going to be, five or 600 in a couple of years, you got to do something, right? That's a pretty big, significant difference in pressure. So, and that's happening statewide in all our units. So when I'm looking at all of that and then trying to still manage this migratory herd, uh, we took out that December hunt. So there's still the August opportunity, which is mostly going to be resident deer, and there's not a lot of those. And then there's still the January opportunity, which is going to be the migratory deer and the bigger bucks that are going to come out to rut so uh, that's why i changed the management i guess in unit nine for mule deer this year sure um javelina you know they, they go up and down a couple years ago i had a ton of them then it snowed really hard in the winter same thing with turkeys which we get to you but uh, i think it killed some of them there's still quite a few of them and we have an over-the-counter opportunity in unit nine for javelina because you know it's like a fringe area where they don't really want them but we're never going to get rid of them with the grand canyon you know they can go in and out of so it's a pretty awesome over-the-counter opportunity. And then my turkey numbers, I, I'm i working on the data on that, but I believe that, that, you know, two years ago they were just everywhere. You saw birds everywhere just driving around. I see three to four flocks a day just driving around on my truck. And then we had that big winter snow in that 2019-2020 winter. Yeah. And uh, that's where people were getting stuck with the snow drifts or having to go rescue them on the late hunt. Yeah, it was late, late elk hunt. That was, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, it was like three-foot snow drifts on the west side. Yeah. I had a little theory about that particular snow. So we had, that really hurt turkeys in a few different parts of the state, according mm-hmm. to some game managers and stuff that I've talked to. And I feel like it's because when we, went to, when we all went to bed that night, it was beautiful. And all those turkeys went up and roosted in trees, up in pines, up high in a beautiful clear evening at eight o'clock or seven o'clock that night yeah and then we got three feet overnight and they were stuck they were up there already they got 
during the roosting time mm-hmm. is when that all came, and it, that hurt turkeys in lots of different places. Yeah, snowmageddon. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and you think how tall they are, and you have three feet of snow on the yeah. ground. It's kind of hard to get your food sources. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. so I, it definitely it definitely hurt them. From what I saw from that year to last year, there's still turkeys in nine. Obviously, I mean, saw your video. You had quite a few coming in. Certain areas had turkeys, but significantly less. I mean, I, I would see you know a flock every once in a while driving around instead of several flocks a day and clearly less turkeys so they go up and down though it's kind of like quail right you know they just bounce up and down and they'll come back but right now it's kind of like a downtrend in nine on turkeys so a couple years it might be through the roof again you never yeah. know but that's kind of how if the outlook on on all the species are i guess right now and what are you seeing up there predator wise what's what's the lions it's not a big lion harvest unit not a lot of bears activity up there i've never seen a wolf up there or any on camera have you had any reports of wolves getting into that piece of country or is there a plan to put wolves in that country one that was documented and then got the, the pictures of it i've been on the seven side I think, yeah though. yeah Something that red that, yeah we like that red squaw light. yeah a squaw that's mm-hmm. right yeah yeah, so I actually had a wolf in Valley a okay. few years ago as well. They're, they're, some of the residents were taking pictures of it. They're, they move around. I think that one went back east, eastern side of the state somewhere. But they, they come from New Mexico all the way over here sometimes it's and amazing. back and forth. And so they show up. But overall, I don't have any yeah. until they randomly show up. A lot of coyotes. Obviously, we, we outlawed trapping years ago. So there's no trapping on state land. And then... The coyote calling contests have gone away, so um, there's less of that going on. There's still a lot of people calling coyotes in Unit 9, and I would encourage you to go out and, and do what you can to help the antelope population. So right now, this time of year, is perfect time to get out and reduce the coyote population. But there's plenty of coyotes in Unit 9. There is a lot of lions in Unit 9, obviously, with the two reservations in the park, and you know, there's a lot of lions. The problem with lion hunters in Unit 9 is that it's so close to the reservations of the park. You yeah. drop your dogs, you're going to end up chasing sure. them on the, Three the park. Three miles around the park. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you run dogs, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, so that, unless you're in the southern part of 9, a lot of guys are not dropping not dogs gonna take in the 9. Chance. They're not running bears in 9 either. That's why a lot of people don't hunt bears in 9. Yeah. Because you, they're up on the rim. And as soon as you drop dogs, you're only a couple miles from the park, and the next thing you know, you're in the park, and you're getting yelled at, right? So. Right. I would say the majority of lion and bear hunters are not going to nine. Yeah. Um, a few of them do, like down around the Red Butte country and some of that for lions. But, you know, the bears, there's only a few bears, and they're in those certain areas along the rim. There's kind of isolated habitat. There, there might be 15 bears in the unit. I have to stop and think, but somewhere in that range. And they're all right up there close to the park. Yeah. And, and so if you if you start dumping dogs, you're going to end up in the park. You're not going to have fun trying yeah. to bear hunt in Unit 9. So they pretty much don't kill any bears in Unit 9 with dogs. Yeah. So occasional one might get shot. Fall like incidental does something else. I had one else. shot last year. Yeah. Um, but, but very few because yeah. guys are not trying to chase them because yeah. they're just going to get in trouble. You know, so. What are some other things you'd want us to know? We want to be respectful of your time and, and wrap here. What are some other things you'd want us to know either about the unit or, or maybe – some things we talked a little bit about what sportsmen can do to, to help wildlife and, and partner up with uh, these agencies and game and fish. Are there any recent changes that hunters may not know about as far as um, changes to commission rules or are there anything like maybe some common violations that are, I always say criminals will always be criminals and good guys will always be good guys. Um, but those good guys that are making the little, uh, I don't mean to underplay it, but the little mistakes that they just didn't know about or didn't read about, or there's some really common things you've seen over the last few years where like, 
hunters maybe should have known or didn't know or some of these common violations that, that cause you grief or frustration or citations that are just unnecessary, so to speak? What can sportsmen do to make your life easier in that aspect? Okay, so Unit 9 specifically, I would say one of the biggest problems I see is guys trying to hunt too close to the South Rim Ranch. You know, you get down there in the low country during the late hunt, and they're literally shooting bulls out of people's private property. Oh, wow. So I'm getting calls on that. And so obviously you can't do that, right? So you need to stay north of there on the forest and out of the South Rim Ranch. is all private. The roads are posted. Private. Stay out unless you live here. Can't be in there. So Unit 9 specifically, that's probably one of the bigger problems I see. Overall, people like, everybody makes mistakes. People make mistakes, right? The important thing that I want to tell the public is if you make a mistake and you do something, let's say you shoot a cow on a bull hunt, whatever, self-report. Call us and turn yourself in because if you self-report, you're probably getting a warning. 99% of the time. I mean, there's a few cases here and there where we can't warn you because it's whatever egregious thing. But you're pretty much getting a warning. You're not going to keep the animal because let's say if you shoot a cow on a bull tag, we can't let you keep it. We're going to take it. We're going to give you a seizure tag, whatever. You're going to be done hunting because you killed one. It's just going to depend on the circumstance. But you're not getting a citation at that point, right? You're turning yourself in. Everything's um, going to be taken care of. You're going to go be able to put in again next year and keep hunting versus you don't turn yourself in we figure it out some other way you had that opportunity but didn't take it now it's not a warning now it's a citation now you're looking at revocation not getting to hunt in whole u.s essentially yeah uh, because you didn't turn yourself in on what was probably started as a mistake right so mm-hmm. if you make a mistake own it own up to it call in tell us what happened we're going to come out we're fair um, we're gonna we're gonna treat you fair, and and we're gonna do the best we can to just make that be a mistake, and that's the end of it, right? You know, everyone makes mistakes, so that's the one big takeaway I wanna I wanna talk about there. Now, the, one of the biggest problems I see statewide, and it's also a problem in Unit Nine right now, is off highway vehicle use. Hmm. And what I mean is improper off highway vehicle use, and so. A lot of our ranchers are starting to want to lock up their properties because they're getting tired of some of the stuff they're seeing. You know, the cross-country travel is a huge one. Um, and that's not just off-highway vehicles. That's trucks. That's vehicles. Hmm. In fact, my late cow hunt in Unit 9 last year, there is a road to every little high spot on the west side of 9 now. Every little barely bump ridge that you might build a glass off of, guess what? It was cold last year. People didn't want to get out of their trucks. They're lazy, and they wanted a glass from the trucks, and it was cold. So they drove up to these high spots, and now there's roads. Well, you know what? That's on somebody's private property or somebody's cattle lease. So now those ranchers are driving around, and here's roads going off all the pl- all everywhere because people were cold or lazy or whatever the case may be. And they see all this, and it's, it's obviously a destruction of habitat, and they're not happy about it. Well, what do you think is going to happen? Right. Right? You know, a few, a few bad apples can ruin this for everyone. So please don't do that. <laughs> Uh, our off-highway vehicles are getting to the point where um, the dust and the noise and some of that stuff that's going on is is bothering some of our ranchers. So what I would say is my take-home is just be respectful, right? Be respectful. Treat other people. Treat the land like it's yours. Treat other people like you would want to be treated, right? Don't leave gates open. 
if you leave a gate open, you might think, okay, I'm, I'm just not going to close this gate because I'm lazy today or whatever. I don't want to get back out because it's raining, whatever the case may be. If cattle get through that, that could take the rancher a week to try to round up them cattle and get everything back. That's a lot of time, a lot of money. That little two seconds of your time might cost that guy a week. Why would he keep his property open for us sure. when, when that stuff's going on? And it's going on a lot, a lot more mm-hmm. than people think it is. Let's just stop and think about a unit. Let's say a, we got a big unit and a third of it's private. Okay, third of it's, let's say it's one ranch, big ranch. And let's say, let's just say for argument's sake, there's a thousand deer tags in that unit. Okay, so if somebody being lazy irritates this rancher and he now closes his ranch, third of the unit gets closed. Well, now we got a lot less places to hunt, right? So that thousand tags doesn't just become 600, you know, take a third away, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't just become 600 because let's say that ranch, even though it's a third of the unit, might be 60% of the deer habitat in that unit, right? right? Mm -hmm. The other stuff might not be usable. So now... 600 tags went away and now there's only 400 tags in that unit because this section got closed because someone wasn't courteous and ruined that and one of the things besides open gates that i'm seeing that's it's it's like a pet peeve of mine and i know it bothers a lot of the ranchers and it's just not common sense is the people driving around in the dirt tanks so let me expand on that we already talked about unit nine tanks not holding water in order to get these tanks to hold water you have to dig them out you have to disturb the bottom you have to mix bentonite into them or there's some other things like db 110 different things you can put in there but you have to mix into the soil something that's going to basically make a hard bottom you know you're not concreting it but you're putting um, a clay in there essentially and then you're rolling it flat so it'll hold water okay so now you got this tank it's finally functioning we just spent five grand fixing this tank and it dries up and you get a guy that runs down there and starts driving around in his four-wheeler or his truck. And you just broke that whole bottom apart and made it where it won't hold water again. And now you have an unusable tank because some guy's driving around in a tank. Right. There's so many people that do this. I don't think they realize. So there's a tank in Unit 9. It's called Newt Lewis. Last year, I put a camera on that tank. And in one week's time, I had 23 vehicles drive through that tank. No 23 way. vehicles. Yeah, on the, on the late hunt. So that tank... I know you guys have all been there guiding. You can drive up. There's a there's a, a fence post there, like a U-post, where you park. And it's 15, 20 yards from where you could park to where you can see and then walk over to the edge and you're looking at the tank, right? 15, 20 yards. You walk over there. You're looking at the tank. The entire tank might be 50 yards wide. I mean, it, it'll take you a minute to walk around it look, if you want to look at tracks. And these guys are driving down in there and driving in a circle around to look at whatever they're looking at and driving out. 23 of them in a week. What do you think that's going to do to the bottom of that tank? You think it's going to hold water? And so I see a lot of that. Antler hunters are notorious for this. They drive into the tanks and drive around, look for antlers, and drive off. That is completely ruining those tanks. And it costs a lot of money and a lot of time and to fix those and volunteer hours and to get them where they hold water. And that little bit of just reckless, not thinking, selfishness, whatever you want to call it, on those tanks, now those ranchers are having to pay to fix them. That is a big chunk of money and time that they are losing to that and that alone can get those ranches closed Mm -hmm. so something as simple as that and and it you know whether it's a four-wheeler or a truck it doesn't matter you're out there tearing that up and i actually see these guys go down there mudding in them (laughs) like you're, you're clearly creating ruts deep enough that you're going past that hard pack right and you're ruining that tank so 
don't do that. Please don't do that. If that's not occurring to you, that's really stupid and it's ruining our tanks. So don't do that because it's getting places closed. So that I say was one of my biggest pet peeves. If you can't walk 20 yards, then don't go look at the tank. Right. Um, Cause it's, it's really destroying them. We went out yesterday, we did a big cleanup project in unit six B down by Fry Park, picking up trash. We loaded a couple, um, I think it was seven or eight trucks and a, two dump trucks and essentially a dumpster full of trash. Mm-hmm. Lazy boy recliners, you wouldn't believe all the stuff taken out of the woods. But uh, driving through Fry Park, there was a tank off in the meadow there, and there was a ton of signs saying no off-fire vehicles, all that. I bet there was 30 sets of tracks out through the grass to that tank yesterday that you could visibly see where everybody was. It's 100 yards over there, 150, and people, instead of walking, are driving out in the meadow. That's just unbelievable. There's literally signs everywhere, and they're doing it anyway. So that little bit of just ridiculous laziness or whatever you want to call it is is ruining a lot of things for people and that stop and think about what we have right now mm-hmm. what percentage of the state is public and that you're able to enjoy and mm-hmm. access and have it's not going to be that way for our kids that's just going to get closed because yeah. people are doing stupid things my kids i want them and my grandkids to be able to go enjoy the woods the way that i can i don't want half the state to be locked up because people were just not considerate of others. Real quick, touch on the legality of that. As far as uh, I, I got an argument with somebody last year that thought that their off-highway vehicle was designed to drive off-road and not on the roads, and they were driving parallel to and near roads and just literally driving around the woods randomly. I know it's a national forest enforcement issue in some cases, and I believe that maybe it's Apache Sitgreaves uh, allows you to drive off-road one of the forests in Arizona. Um, but that's completely illegal, right? Any of these tech tires that are leaving a maintained road or a road surface, is that, what is the legality there? Yeah, so on pretty much all of our forests, you can't drive cross-country, period. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one or two that allows it at certain times, and if you are not doing habitat damage. Yeah. So anytime you're tearing up the soil or you run over a sage bush or... Um, you know, it rained at all and now you're leaving ruts, it's still a legal period even in those. But 90 plus percent of our forests, it's illegal all the time. It's not just a, uh, it's also a, a Title 17 game of fish violation. Okay. 17454 okay. is the, the code for that, but it's you can look that up. It's ARS. It is illegal to drive cross country unless you're retrieving game. Up to and, a mile, correct? To retrieve game only to a mile. So it depends on the forest. And some of the forests have a time of year when you can't retrieve game. Mm-hmm. So one forest might say after October until February you can't retrieve game. Period. Because it's muddy there. Mm-hmm. They know it gets rain there and they don't want you driving across country. This other forest might not have that rule. You can go retrieve your game. Or they might say you can go a mile to retrieve game and that's it. Mm-hmm. One, one trip in, one trip out. It really depends. You need to look up the forest you're going to and look up their travel management plan and see what it is. Some places will let you retrieve certain game, yeah. like you can get an elk or a buffalo, but not a deer because a deer is small and you should be able to carry it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, other forests might not care. You really have to look at the forest you are going to and know the rules there because it changes everywhere. But essentially, it's illegal to drive cross country the majority of the time for any reason other than to go retrieve wildlife yeah. um, on almost every forest. Yeah. There's a few exceptions. Anything else you want our our listeners to know about you or about ongoing things? Um, I want to make sure that any of our listeners to the Hunt with Matt and Dan podcast that have been inspired to do 
uh, call to action today. Think about the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Think about the Arizona Elk Society. Think about the Arizona Antelope Society. Uh, think about the, the deer organizations we've got within the state. You can get involved, whether it's helping on a project, donating your money, um, just hanging out and being a mentor in some of these volunteer camps. There's a lot of ways people can get involved. Any closing comments from you, Officer Rigo? Anything you'd want everybody to know or anything we didn't cover you'd like to cover today? Yeah, if anyone wants to get a hold of me, they can call the Flagstaff office of the Arizona Game of Fish. They'll give you my number, and I'm more than happy to talk to anybody that has a tag or wants to know any information about Unit 9. Other than that, if you can help out in any way, donating water to wildlife or helping out with your time, volunteer hours, anything like that, it would be greatly appreciated, and uh, we could definitely use it right now. Awesome. Well, a big shout-out to our guest, Officer David Rigo, Game and Fish. Did not have to do this. Very generous, very busy guy, getting ready to go to Alaska, I think, in the next 24 hours. Very generous of him to donate his morning to us. Big thanks to our, our right-hand guy here, Tyne Heckthorn, coming over and, and contributing today. And uh, we always appreciate listening to the Hunt Podcast with Matt and Dan. We'll uh, be back on the radio with another one here before too long. And thanks for listening. Have a great day. The Hunt with Matt and Dan is brought to you by Zero Outfitter Fees, the Wild Sheep Foundation, and Diamond Property Group.